We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, and we're almost going to be done with chapter 1. This is the last, second to last week until chapter 1 is finally done. It's only taken us five weeks to get through what you can read in about two minutes. Um, but it has been fun for me. It's been really fun for me. Last week, we talked about the supremacy of Jesus. I love thinking about how big and vast and magnificent and powerful and merciful and holy and just that Jesus is. Today, we are going to look at another side of the spectrum that we have to hold in tension with who God is. Otherwise, we will end up getting a lot of things very, very wrong. And today, specifically, we're going to look at how to grow in the good news of Jesus and how to avoid falling into the traps of religion, how to avoid falling into the traps of legalism, and then also how to avoid falling into the traps of, of irreligion, falling into the traps of I do what I want, I make my own rules. So let's pray, and then we're going to get into God's word this morning. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you love us while we were yet sinners. I thank you that you died for us while we were yet sinners. God, today, as we talk about sin and death and being hostile toward you, and as we talk about your wrath, I pray that, that as it is in the Bible, your wrath would be clearly seen and perceived, but that your grace would wash over us and your mercy would be good news to our ears and that we would see your glory this morning. I love you in Jesus' name, all God's kids said. Amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to back up a couple verses that we didn't quite get to last week just to touch on them. Verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. We're talking about Jesus here. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. May God bless the reading of his word. I love this portion of scripture. I love a part of scripture that lifts up Jesus to the highest heavens, that we can see the, the mega picture of how big, how gracious and loving Jesus is, and then it takes us to the dark pits of humanity, saying that, that we were alienated from God, saying that we were hostile toward God. Now, most people that I meet nowadays generally will say I'm a pretty good person. When we get to that conversation about Jesus, when they find out I'm a pastor, they'll usually come out with something to that, uh, to that extent, say, hey, oh, I'm a pretty good person. I think I'll make it through. At which point, I usually have to deliver them some very bad, bad news. You are, outside of Jesus, an enemy of God. And at that point in the South, I've discovered it's very different than on the West where I grew up. When I tell somebody that they are under the wrath of God and an enemy of God, in California, people are just like, oh, whatever, you don't know anything. But here when I say that, I see a glaze of fear, and it's like all the preaching from their childhood begins to flood into their mind. Because in the South specifically, it was much more prominent to hear those sermons of hellfire, right? Did anybody have that experience. I've, I've seen a little bit of it on YouTube. Uh, it's not, people don't preach like that in California because nobody would come. But, but here, there's this sense of in the South where you can, you can preach like that as long as you're wearing a three-piece wool suit in the middle of humidity, Florida-ridden summer, you could say whatever you want. Because back in the day, people kind of had to go to church. If you didn't, you were an outcast. And even today, to some extent, I've found that the easiest way, if you want to avoid going to church or getting invited, just tell people you have a church. Like, if you're visiting today and you're sick of getting invited, like, oh, I don't want to go to this chapel. People keep bugging me. I don't want to go to any church. Just tell your neighbors, hey, uh, I, I'm plugged in at a church. I just go once a year on Easter, and I drive through the parking lot, and I drive back out. And then all of the Christian neighbors will leave you alone. That, that's the best way to avoid God in church. That's a free tip for those of you who want to get out of here. 
But I, I need us to think about this today because we, we talk a lot about Jesus here. We've got a big old Jesus sign. Our website's the Chapel of Fishhawk, all about Jesus. We have coffee holder things that say all about Jesus. People said, uh, I remember the staff meeting, someone said, if people are saying the coffee cups are hot, I want to get, co- can we get coffee sleeves? And I said, I don't like coffee sleeves. I want them to feel the heat of the coffee. I want them to know what burning feels like so I can say, feel how hot that is? That's like hell, but not as bad. Come to Jesus. And they begged me. So I said, fine, you can get coffee sleeves as long as somebody pays for them and they say all about Jesus on them. So I love it. You know, we got those right when that whole Starbucks thing was going on, like the Starbucks coffee cup. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be an annoying Christian. Just go to Starbucks and start sleeving these things up with all about Jesus coffee sleeves. I didn't. Because nobody turns to Jesus when they do that, right? I've never met somebody who sees a coffee sleeve or a bumper sticker and they're like, whoa, that's what I needed. An angry bumper sticker with a Republican sticker right next to it. They don't, they don't need that. So here's how I know we're hostile in mind. All, first of all, we need to know that Jesus is the fullness of God. And then Paul switches gears and he says, you who are once alienated and hostile in mind. If you don't think that humans are naturally hostile, all you have to do is own a Facebook account every four years on what we affectionately call election year. On election year, inevitably, you have people mudslinging from across the aisles. And this year has been just spectacular. Because I'm getting posts, and I try really hard to like not go into any of these things because it's never good. It's ne- I've never changed anyone's mind. All that I've done is make myself feel better about being a jerk. But here's what I see on Facebook right now. If you're voting for Trump, unfriend me now dot, 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 you're a expletive, expletive, lacking brains, etc. And then you see the same post. If you're voting for Hillary, you should wear the same jail stripes that she should wear. If you're voting for Bernie, keep your stuff to yourself. And keep. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And people are so hostile. People that once used to love each other can become bitter enemies over who's going to get elected. A older white billionaire, a older female multimillionaire, whatever political party, Republican, Democrat, all of a sudden, it's like we see that God says, love your neighbor, except for during election cycles on opposing parties. (laughs) It's almost like we turn that verse into that and we become hostile. Now, the Bible here is saying that we were hostile to God. And some of you are thinking, I have never been hostile to God. Pastor Ryan, I've never looked at God and said, I don't like you. I'm not going to live for you. I don't love you. But the trick here is, is that we do this and we don't even know that we're doing it. We are born with a nature bent away from God. In sin, in the womb, my mother conceived me. In sin, David sings. Before we did anything, we had already broken God's law by doing what sin always does. Its ultimate end is to dethrone God and put yourself or something else on the throne of your existence. Make something else your ultimate pursuit and dreams and desires. This is what it means to be hostile toward God, to be alienated from God. As you guys know, my my son Jackson really has approval issues. He wants to be loved all the time. And, uh, And he thinks every time he gets in trouble that I'm not going to love him. No matter how many times I tell him, I will always love him. So now he's changed it to, Daddy, I know you love me, but do you still like me? And that's one of those tricky ones, right? Because there's this little saying in our culture that goes like, I love you, but I don't have to like you. But then I decided one day, no, I like my son. And I have to figure out how to say that like right after I spank him. That's the trick. Because there's a hostility that's going on in Jackson's life where he's trying to be the God of our household. In Savannah, my daughter, she's already the demigod of our household because she, she does what she wants. We tried to potty train her. We quit after three days. She was just rebellious. She would sit on her little pink potty for literally over an hour and a half, refusing to do anything. I, I poured water on her at one point because I was so tired of it. So just pee like this, water. Didn't take. That's probably not my best and brightest moment. She... She is hostile toward me, and we are, we are hostile toward God in so much of what we do that we don't realize it. And what I want us to look at today is that we are not hostile to God 
by simply saying, God, I'm mad at you. God, I'm not going to listen to you. We are hostile to God anytime we are turning to something that is not Jesus to find our significance, to find our hope, to find our security, to find value for our lives. Because this is what Paul says. We have to look, listen really carefully. It says that he, Jesus, has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless before God. This is the thing that gets us holy and blameless before God. Jesus alone. There is nothing that can cover for you. There is nothing that can stand before you. There is no righteous record you get to unfold before God. There is no Santa list that will get you off of the hook. It is only Jesus alone. And if you are in him, you're good. If you are not in him, you're heading for not good. And when you die and you stand before God, it's not a matter of saying, God, I was a pretty good guy. It's a matter of saying either Jesus died for me. By his death, I can stand here. Or it's a matter of saying, I tried really hard. Was that good enough? And God will say every single time, it is not good enough. Your righteous works are like filthy rags. Your best deeds are not what I wanted. I wanted your total surrender. I didn't want you to try to simply be the best person you could be apart from me because the best person you can be is when you are wrapped up, enveloped, and enclosed in me. And it's by Jesus' death. Many of you are doing Bible reading plans this year, and by now you've made it through Leviticus. If you've never read Leviticus, it is a fascinating book. It's usually where almost everybody quits their Bible reading plans. Because you read Genesis, you're like, this is kind of cool. There's a flood. There's these people, all this drama stories. There's backstabbing. It's amazing. You read Exodus, you're like, I've read this story. I've seen the movie, you know, boom, the Red Sea parting. Then you get to Leviticus. And you're like, okay, we had these cool stories. And now it's, here's how you kill a goat for this sin. Here's how you kill pigeons for this sin. And as a modern Western culture person, that sounds very weird. I mean, it doesn't sound weird for the people that live in the rural areas of Florida, but it sounds weird for people that live closer to Tampa. I have never killed an animal and eaten it other than a fish in my life. I wouldn't know what to do. If you brought me out hunting and I shot a deer, I wouldn't know what to do next. I would say, I shot it, what do I do? Do I carry it out of here? Do I stuff its head? I don't know. Some of you, I know you know what to do because I've talked to you. You're like, oh, this is what you got to do. It's called dressing it. I was like, you put a sweater on it? What does dressing a deer mean? I don't get it. No, no, you, you cut the guts out, you hang it up, dry it out, flies come, you do this, this, sauce, and boom, 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 and then all of a sudden you're sneaking deer meat into my hamburger patties. I don't understand that. But, but in the Old Testament, when it's talking about killing, there was a specific purpose that God had in mind. There's a specific reason that, that when Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices, God accepted the animal sacrifice. There's a specific reason why when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered up themselves with fig leaves, but right from the garden, God said, no, that's not going to cover it. Something has to die to right the wrong that you did. So then God covered them with animal skins. They were covered with skins because an animal had to die to sacrifice for their sin. And the book of Leviticus is one illustration after the other, after the other, to show God's people, sin is this bad. Something has to die for you to live. Could you imagine that job? I mean, I don't know if I would have signed up for seminary and being a priest if that was my yearly job, where all y'all would line up for all of your sins and you would bring in the calf. And I would be up here like, this is a really bad year. <laughs> Get the blood, sprinkle it on you, say the prayers. I mean, A, we're in Fishhawk, so that just looked like a freaky horror movie. Like, why are they celebrating Halloween in July? And just lining it up. Kill, animal goes, cook this one, burn the fat, eat some meat, save some for the fam, you're next, boom. We would kind of get the picture that, okay, sin is pretty serious. Sin isn't just a thing where we walk down, sit in a pew with our coffee, all about Jesus, sing a couple songs, get all happy, feel all good, get a little convicted, a little guilty, maybe say a prayer at the end. No, sin is a, a life for a life. But God knew that it wasn't animal lives that would ever meet the need. The Old Testament people were not saved by the death of those animals. The, the sacrificial system was pointing to something, was pointing to a reality where something would be sacrificed once and for all. No animals would be sacrificed ever again. And that was Jesus. Because we were hostile, but Jesus, by his death, by the shedding of his blood, made you blameless before God. There are a lot of Christian denominations that don't want to talk about the blood of Jesus. They don't want to talk about the death of Jesus because it's morbid, because why do we want to talk about blood in church? 
Without the blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without Jesus' shed blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. If we don't get to the point where we can talk about the realities that are in the Bible, I don't know what we're doing here. Because before Jesus died, we were hostile and alienated. And let me explain how right here. This, I love this verse because it's so good for us. Verse 23. The way that you're uh, holy and blameless and above reproach is if indeed you continue in the faith. Everyone say if. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. You are saved if you continue in the faith. This is the biggest if in the Bible because there are two ways we can go wrong. In Tertullian, the church father said, just as there were two thieves on either side of our Lord when he was crucified, there are two thieves that will try to rob you away from the gospel, away from Jesus. And they are very, very different, but they come from the same root. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is the good news. It's our church word we use. It's our stained glass word. It means the good news about Jesus. He lived the perfect life, died the death you deserve to die, rose again, triumphant over death and sin forever, and we put our trust in that. Now, here's the problem that I see. We start with that. Christians all know to start with that. The hellfire guys, the happy-go-lucky guys, the prosperity guys, they start with, you need Jesus. But what happens, unfortunately, is we say we need the gospel, we need the good news to get into the club. Once you believe, that's great. Now I want you to try as hard as you can to be as good as you can, to appear as good as you can in front of everyone around you. Now that actually is bad news. Because this passage says it's not you start with the gospel and then you move on. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, you continue to believe the good news, the gospel, the good news, this this Jesus life thing for you where he traded his life for your life, where he traded his perfection for your wretchedness, this is the thing that we must believe every single day to grow in Jesus. And we're going to talk about specifically how to do that very soon here. It's not about getting the gospel in the beginning. The good news is not, as Pastor Tim Keller says, the ABCs of the gospel. It's the A to Z. It's everything that we need for hope and life in this world. And when we move away from that gospel and we start to try to do things on our own strength, that's when our lives will fall apart. So let me illustrate this. Um, church people, we're good at stealing from the gospel by being very religious. This is me now, primarily. I used to be a, a non-church person where I did what I want, made up my own rules. So we're going to use some, some different terms. So over here we have, everyone say religious people. And another word we're going to put in this camp are legalists. And another word is moralists. I know these are, these are big churchy philosophy words. The legalist moralists, these are the rule-keeping people. These are the, the purity police. These are the people who want to police your morality. These are the Christians who, when they see you doing any sin wrong, they're going to come right after you and let you know that you are angering God in heaven. I love these people when they trip and fall on their face. I don't like these people because I don't like being policed by somebody who's not Jesus. I like it when people lovingly guide me. I like it when people lovingly encourage me. But I don't care for the people who think it's their moral responsibility to be the judge of the universe or their suburban neighborhood. I don't care for that. You find a lot of these people on the Fishhawk neighborhood pages. Okay. Over here, you've got the irreligious. Not always outside of religion. Everyone say irreligious. These are relativists. Everyone say relativists. They make up their own rules. That's what that means. They say, this what's good for me is good for me, good for you, good for you. I make my own rules. Don't touch me. Get away from me. Over there, the religious legalists. Over here, the irreligious relativists. They make up their own rules. They, they hold these rules to an impossibly high standard. Now, here's the best part about loving the good news of Jesus. It's neither of those, and the more that you press into the gospel, the more you'll anger both camps. Let me, let me illustrate here. Because the gospel says this. You are a wretched, wretched person, hostile and an enemy to God, but God in his infinite love, while you were sinners, died for you. So that, that costs something to God. That costs God the life of his son, dead, buried, three days in the grave, rose again. Here, here's why these people don't like this, the legalist Larrys, because they want to hold the keys to the rules. They want to be able to oppress people. They want to be able to guilt people into good behavior. And what, what the gospel does is it frees people and says, no, Jesus died for every one of those people's sins. And here's the first objection that I get all the time. And if you love the gospel more and more, you're going to get this. But what about 
getting better in Jesus? Shouldn't we be better people? Absolutely. I believe your life should be progressing, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. However, Jesus died for all of your sin, not the sin that you commit and then ask for forgiveness for and commit and ask for He died for all of it. The sin that you did commit, the sin that you're currently committing, the sin that you're going to commit tomorrow, it's already been paid for. So you are guilt-free, condemnation-free. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason the legalists don't like this is because they want to be able to beat people with a stick. And they want to say, no, God is holy, God is holy, God is holy. And yes, he is holy. But he is not just holy, he is holy and loving. And on the flip side over here, you've got people who say, I, I'm, I do what I want. Now, let's be honest. The majority of those people are going to tend to be from the south. They're going to tend to be a little bit older. You're going to be 40, 45, 50 and older. That's going to mark the religious, legalist-oriented generation. Now, you put my generation on the table. We have no ability to make any decisions or stand up for anything. We're called the millennials and Gen Xers. We make up our own rules. We get mad at you for telling us that we're doing something wrong. We have our own opinions, and here's, here's the stance of my generation. You know, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Don't try to press your views on me. And whenever someone tells me that, I love it, because I say, you know, that's a view that you're pushing on me. You're pushing your non-pushing view on me. So let me take your non-pushing view on me, and I'm going to push my view back on you so you can take a view and take it. You, you, you know what I said. Now, here, here's what this side can become. Within churches, this can be the people who love, and then we talk about love and grace and forgiveness, and that's all good and that's all true. But it's also true with God's holiness and justice. And if you take just this camp, just these churches, the progressive-leaning churches, you'll tend to be a people marked by God's lavish grace and forgiveness without any talk of God's holiness and justice. And it's this sloppy agape. Agape is the Greek word for love. So you call it sloppy agape. We love you no matter what. Now here's what the gospel says. Jesus, in Jesus you can be loved no matter what, but it comes at great cost because Jesus had to die for the penalty that you deserve. And the love over here, people say, just love. God is love. He's such a nice guy. He's love. What I want to say to them is, how much did, did your God, how much did he have to pay for that love? Did it cost him anything? Oh no, he just loves us all. And I tell them, my God, the God of the Bible, I think his love is stronger and better than your God's love because it cost my God the life of his son. It didn't cost my God this frilly dance through the fields where he can just be happy. He said, I'm going to put some, I'm going to put some flesh on this bet and I'm going to give my son. That's the kind of love that I have because of this wrath over here, this justice that God is holy. God does have rules. Now, how do we grow, though, without falling into one of these camps? Because we're all going to tend to do it. We're all going to tend to go one click to the legalist way, one click to say, I need to just be good and then I'll be approved. And one click maybe to the other way that says, ah, I'll just do what I want, I'll make the rules so then I'm loved, I have high self-esteem, all that good stuff. The gospel says, no, it's, it's neither of those. It's focusing your life on Jesus, recognizing that you're more wretched than you knew and God's love paid for that wretchedness. And when you move one click to the left or the right, it's going to begin to throw things off. One of the quotes that I love that puts this in a very simple phrase is this. Uh, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's a very different terminology. It's a very uh, important understanding. Religion says, if you don't do the right things, you're out of the club. God says, if you come to Jesus, you're in the club no matter what you do. And I mean no matter what you do. And right now, when I say that, no matter what you do, all the legalists in here are automatically thinking, no, it's not no matter what we do. No, it's no matter what you do. You cannot outsin God's love in Jesus' death on the cross. But then the irreligious people over here say, yeah, what he said, I could do whatever I want. And then to them I say, but God's still infinitely angry at sin. And he's a loving dad. My kids are finally getting to that age where they're realizing that I love them no matter what. It's taken a long time, and it's hard. I can only do it with my kids. Bring in any of their friends, I'm all justice God. Like, you get these kids out of here. It's time for dinner. I, I love all the kids in the neighborhood, but it, it cracks me up how much I could see my own personality shifting 
to where I want to become religious sometimes. Sometimes I want to make up the rules. And here's what it looks like. We're going to go through some uh, examples here. Let's go through suffering. Anybody suffered lately? Right? That's what they say. Like, if you don't raise your hand to that question, just wait. You will suffer. Because you're going to have children, you're going to get married, and those things never cause suffering in anyone's life. So, without the gospel being the heart of your life, when bad things happen to you, here's what humans tend to do. You will tend to fall into a I hate me stance where you're so guilt-ridden because of what you've done, you'll say, I, I've done something wrong. This is the person who, when you, when you fall into something bad, you think, what have I done to anger God? And now he's punishing me. And you turn into the I hate me, or you can turn into the I hate thee mindset. These are the people who, when suffering comes, you say, okay, I'm mad at myself, or you flip over and say, no, I'm mad at you. You're the cause of my pain. God's the cause of my pain. I'm angry at God. I'm angry at you. I'm angry at this situation. Without the gospel in the center, your heart has to turn to one of those because the human heart is wired to seek justice and reconciliation. And we need somebody to take the blame. Unfortunately, we put the blame on other things that can't handle it. We don't put the blame where Jesus said to put it, squarely on his shoulders because he took all of the blame. So when you suffer and you say, I hate me, you need to think of this. Okay, I'm not believing the gospel. I'm not believing that Jesus died for me because I'm turning all of God's anger toward me. My flat tire is my fault. I did something wrong. My cancer is my fault. I did something wrong. This health issue is my fault. My child who's rebellious is my fault. I didn't parent right. I didn't direct them right. It's all my fault. This is the I hate me, I hate me, I hate me. And what we do is we beat ourselves up. Whether you're a parent, grandparent, sibling, friendship, we just keep beating ourselves. Ah, I'm so bad. And, and I, I can't really picture what this looks like to Jesus because Jesus got beat up for all of our sin. And every time, I've said it before, I'll say it 100,000 times, every time we beat ourselves up for our sin, we're functionally telling God in a silent prayer, Jesus, you weren't beat up enough for me. Let me beat myself up a little bit more because we've become legalists. We think that we can actually reach a level of sadness over our sin that will make God say, now you're sad enough. Or you turn into the I hate thee. I've met many, many of these people. A parent dies, sibling dies, uh, something happens, uh, a miscarriage happens, a child dies, all these horrible things. And I see people turn into the, the I, I can't stand God. How could God, who you say is loving and good, let this happen? I hate God. And I've, I've seen that. I've walked with people through that. Here's the irony. In both of those situations, we're falling away from the gospel. That person is saying, I'm going to merit what I deserve by beating myself up. This person is saying, God owed me a better life than the one I'm living because of how good I am. Now, let's just think about this hypothetically. The best human, the most perfect human to ever walk the planet Earth was Jesus. There was nobody better than him. We talked about it last week. If you missed last week's sermon, all we did was just blast out how amazing Jesus is. That Jesus died the most horrendous death ever. Not only was it horrendous because of the crucifixion, but at one point when he died, the wrath of God against all sin was poured onto Jesus and Jesus took it. The most perfect person took the most radically, insanely painful death, not only to his body, but to his whole soul. So next time you think, I deserve a better life than this, Jesus didn't stand on the cross saying, I deserve a better death than this. The most perfect being had the most horrendous death. I, I don't know about you, but I get caught up in this American image of what my life is supposed to be like. But what I, don't, what I deserve from God, it's not, I don't deserve mercy from God, I deserve wrath. I don't deserve, I don't deserve grace and the free gift of eternal life, I deserve justice. But I, I wrongly go back to thinking that I've done good today. God, I preached a sermon today. God, I prayed today. God, I read the Bible today. God, I was kind to someone today. All the while, God says, wait, 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 wait. You think that's what makes you good before me? No. You deserve my wrath. Because not only did you read the Bible today or preach today or pray today or show kindness today, you were doing it for yourself, not for me. 
You were doing it because you wanted the rec recognition and the approval and the love of others, not for me. That's how wretched I am, me. I can't speak for you, I could speak for me. That when I do good things, even the good things I do are tainted by my desire for the love from others and not just from God. Man, is it run deep. I'm coaching soccer, it's a blast. If your kids aren't in soccer, I'd encourage you to sign your kids up just so that they can um, get abused by other kids playing soccer. I had one of these moments again yesterday where my sin nature was high level. Because um, I'm coaching, and, and last, last season I had Corey, our tech director, he was coaching with me, so we kind of kept each other at bay, our sin nature, because we're really um, wanting our kids to win their five to seven-year-old soccer league like it's the NBA playoffs. And yesterday there was this kid, and it's a five to seven league, and Jackson, my son, he's big. He's like the size of a nine-year-old. But they had a kid even bigger. I hope his parents aren't here. <laughs> and if you are, I don't apologize. This kid was so big. And we were playing soccer. And I'm coaching out there. And I'm usually the nice coach. I smile, you know, because the parents are like, oh, this is the guy that works at the chapel. So I don't want people to be like, oh, this is the guy that works at the chapel. Um, so I'm like happy. Hey, what's up? Well, this kid was going in. And I, I love my little soccer kids. I've got, you know, tiny little people. They're scared of the soccer ball. And then Jackson, big, gangly, uncoordinated kid. And as we're playing, they've got this kid in this team. And I promise you, he's like a 7-year-old in a 10-year-old's body. He's just huge. And, and he would go for that ball, and he would send some of my kids flying time and time again. Boom, there goes little Vincent. Boom, there goes Mia. Boom, there's Jackson bleeding. So then I... I don't want to just say something to the kid because he's like seven, allegedly, on steroids. <laughs> he's a ringer. So, uh, so I do what I do best. I use my words because I can talk. So he knocks down a kid for like the 17th time. So I start telling my kids how to play soccer on my team. Hey, kids, let's uh, make sure we keep it clean. Don't shove kids down or slide kick or be huge. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it happens again. And I'm like, Okay, I need to say something to somebody. So I lean over to the ref. I'm like, ref, watch this big kid. Just watch him for 10 seconds. He's going to knock down one of my kids within 10 seconds. One, two, three, four, boom. You're down, boom, you're down. Ref, could you do something about it? I don't know what to do, man. I don't know. Tell him to stop. <laughs> and then comes like the magic moment where my son gets a swift kick to the no-no square. Right? And as a father, I feel... I feel threatened. I feel like if you're going to attack my future grandchildren, we're going to have words. And I used to have this thing that my wife told me I was never allowed to do um, because I'm bigger than most guys, you know. I used to have this thing at the park when Jackson was my only child. I was very protective. Now if they fall off the monkey balls in their head, I'm like, is he okay? Is he breathing? Cool. Get up soon. But my first child, you're all protective. You're like, oh, careful. And when the kids at the park, they can be bullies. So they'd shove Jackson down. So I told my wife one day, I was just heated. He was at a park with a bully. Bully shoved him down. I said, I got a new thing I'm going to do. Next time a kid shoves my kid down, I'm going to drag the dad over and do to the dad whatever that kid did to my kid. And my wife's like, you're a pastor? I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll remember that. Because that guy's going to come to church the next day. But I was so close yesterday. I was like, you kick my kid in the no-no square again. I'm going to institute the old-style Tyrona. I'm going to find your daddy and bring him over here. That's not good, because I, don't you work here? No. He's <laughs> my, my twin. He's a, he's a much better person than me. When it got to the end of that game, oh, man, I was, like, not smiling anymore. Just glaring at that kid. When we gave high fives, I was like, good game, good game. And when the big kid got up, I was like, good game, big guy. Smack your hand. This is a seven-year-old kid. I'm a 30, almost 35-year-old man. Good game, coach. A little rough out there today. That's what I said. I was trying to institute my godhood over this entire soccer thing. I, I was saying my rules are the rules for this whole game. It doesn't matter what anyone else is thinking. It doesn't matter that that poor team had never won a game until yesterday. So I felt a little bit better. I pretended that we were just having mercy, even though we really just got our butts kicked. At the end of the day, I wanted to be the God of that situation. I wanted them to follow and live up to my standards when God's standards are infinitely higher. I didn't want to have love. I just wanted them to have the law. When we go through suffering, when you 
find out is when you'll find out what you're really believing in your heart. When your life is crumbling, that's when you'll know which one of these you're clicking toward. Am I tending toward a, the religious, legalist person, or am I tending toward the relativist, it's okay, God will still love me person? Only in the gospel, when we find suffering, can we say, I deserve far worse than this, but God loved me despite what I deserve because Jesus died for me. It's only when you have the gospel at the center of your life that I think we can make sense of those situations that are tragic, when somebody dies in the middle of the night unexpectedly, where we can say, God is still in control. I may not understand it. I may not like it. But I know, I know that he's not giving us what we deserve because we deserve death and hell forever. Because at the end of that soccer match as it was going on, my son Jackson, um, he's not as much of a fighter as Silas, but I've taught him how to play soccer like an adult should play soccer, not remembering that it is a kid's league. So I looked on YouTube like rules for soccer because I was a basketball player. I didn't know what you're allowed to do. And I find out those soccer guys, they could be vicious animals out there. So I'd show Jackson a video. Here's what you're allowed to do. Don't do this. Don't kick them there, but you can kick them like this. If they got the ball, you can run into them like this. And I realized like that was probably a bad parenting moment because then it, as Jackson's getting just destroyed, he's angry, he's bleeding. And when Jackson gets angry, he does the same thing that I do. So if you ever see me um, angry faced but crying, it's time to just clear the room because that, that's my flesh. That's how I used to be. Every time I got in a fight in high school, middle school, whatever it was, I get super angry that I start crying. And it sounds sad and it probably looks equally as pathetic as it sounds because this happens in marriage. If I get so angry that I'm like blistering, I'm not yelling, all of a sudden I just start boiling up and then tears. It's, it's like this irony. Well, Jackson started doing that for the first time in his life yesterday. He gets so angry that this kid is just hammering him down and down and down. All of a sudden, I see him going from running nice, fun Jackson, and his hands clench up to fists. And I see tears, but no crying. I'm like, uh-oh, he's about to wreck somebody. This was me. And then I see him, and, and Jackson runs like a, a baby giraffe because he doesn't know how his body works yet. You know, he goes, no, 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 no. He starts going for him. And I'm like, that kid weighs like 15 pounds more. And I'm just like, please, Lord, let that kid have the ball so it just doesn't look like a flagrant anger burst. Thankfully, the kid had the ball. And Jackson took all of his giraffe boniness and was just like, nah, not even going for the ball, just like, I'm going to spike you with my bony elbows and hips. And Jackson just fell off the ground. He was so angry, he had to sit out after that. I was like, get out of the game. I didn't say, Jackson, you're angry, go sit down. <laughs> Jackson could not handle not being God. He could not handle being in charge, and he wasn't about to show this kid any love. He, he as, a, as a son, was forgetting at the core is that it doesn't matter what this kid is doing. It doesn't matter what's going on in the game. It matters that you realize that... You, that all that we're doing is wrapped up in living our life for God and knowing that he loves us even when we fail, that he'll pick us up even when we're down. This is what God will do. This is how you can know what you're tending toward. If you're going to lash out on somebody, you're this way. If you're going to just be like, oh, people can just push over me. If you're a poly pushover, you're leaning toward this direction. Let's do one more. Let's do uh, depression. Actually, we'll hit it, maybe two more. Depression. The moralist says, the religious person says, if you're depressed, and I don't mean clinically, I need to clarify this. I don't mean clinically there's a physiological thing that's broken. I just mean like a general um, sadness. You're, you're constantly down. You're beating yourself up. The moralist says, repent and do better. You're doing something wrong. That's why you're sad. That's why your life is messed up. So repent. Turn away from that. The religious person says, just go read a book about self-esteem. Just pump yourself up. Believe in yourself. The gospel says something totally different. It says, your life is actually more despondent and messed up than it is here, but God will love you in the midst of it so that you no longer have to have a false sense of esteem. Now, I grew up in the self-esteem movement. Let me tell you, um, none of you in here has more self-esteem than me. And I'm not saying that as a good thing. I'm saying that as I am the chief of sinners in this area because of when I grew up. If you ask any one of my three brothers, one of them's here today, um, we will all say that we are the best-looking brother. And there's no debate. I am clearly the best-looking brother. No debate. My other brother's strong and has abs that are, like, visible, but I've got abs. They're just hibernating. <laughs> but it's all up here. It's a moneymaker. And so my hair recedes more. I'm winning. 
we all believe that we are the smartest and the most athletic and this and that. And, and I know the truth. The truth is that I am the smartest and most athletic of my brothers. But that esteem that was built up, and if you grew up in the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, love yourself, it was, a, it was the natural catapult swing from the love movement of the 60s. And so we love ourselves so much that we become blind to see ourselves as we really are. Here's the tricky thing about that. The self-esteem movement tends to see ourselves in a very good light, and we always want to make sure everyone else's self-esteem is a little bit below ours. We want to see ourselves in the best light possible, and we do that by bringing other people down some notches. As long as they're a little bit worse than me, as long as they cuss a few times more than me, as long as they drink a little bit more, as long as they're a little bit worse of a parent, mother, father, son, child, brother, sister, student, and we, we notch ourselves up on this pedestal, and we say, I am good. Neither of those ways, trying to find more self-esteem on your own or trying to just simply repent and do better, will get you out of a depression, will get you out of a funk, will get you out of a season of life where everything is not going your way. The only thing that I've found that can pull you out of that is when you get down to the core and ask the question, what am I trusting in to get me out of this situation? If you're over here, this is me. This is my mode of operating primarily now the religious guy. I think, I'm having a bad day. What do I need to do? I need to go pray. If I pray, that'll answer my problems. And, and sometimes I turn to just the act of prayer and not to the person I'm praying to. But I say, if I do these things and if I try really hard, then I'll, I'll finally get out of this, this rut that I'm in. I'm trusting in my actions. I'm trusting in my Bible reading. I'm trusting in my prayer. I'm trusting in my church attendance. I'm trusting in my giving. I'm trusting in all of these little things that don't actually get me out of the predicament. Because, as we talked about a few weeks ago, if you trust in anything other than Jesus, that thing will let you down. I've been let down by the best of them. I've been let down by churches. I've been let down by friends. I've been let down by my spouse, by children. I've been let down by the best of them. And I've learned over the years that people will let you down. Things will let you down. There's one person who stands like a rock at the center. Likewise, if you're over here on this side, and you're just saying, I just got to believe in myself. I can do it. It's all about me. And if I feel good about myself, then my life's going to change. If you get stuck in that mode, you're going to realize fairly quickly that as my English brothers would say, you're not the bee's knees. You don't have it all. Somebody always has more. For some reason, we just get stuck in this mode over here. I think it's like the hybrid of Oprah and like, Joel Osteen, and a bunch of these very happy people. And I got nothing against them. Like, me and Joel, we hit it off. We met at Disney California Adventure one day, and before I met him, I didn't like him. After I met him, I was like, I love this guy. I love this guy. We met in a bathroom at Disneyland, ironically. That's where I met Joel Osteen. It was a weird story. I can't share it in mixed company. Men's breakfast, okay. But but the self-esteem, believe in yourself, speak your goodness into the air and it will happen, that doesn't happen. That's, that's not how life works. You know, there, there's a book that I read where it said, you know, just pray that God will answer all your prayers and nothing is too small to pray for. And this author said, when you go into a parking lot, you pray for the closest upfront spots. First off, I can't ever picture Jesus saying that. And second off, what happens if God answers your prayer? Does he vaporize the 90-year-old lady in her car? Like, what if there's a lady that pulls in, you're like, God, I want the best spot. God's like, done. Her time is up anyways. <laughs> Boom. And you pull in all happy. Ooh, God answered my prayer. There's an old lady in heaven like, how did I get here? <laughs> well, this guy wanted a spot, and I am his genie. That's not how God works. Only in the gospel can we finally say, I, I deserve far worse. Whatever I'm going through that's making me depressed, I actually deserve worse than that. But God loves me so much that I don't, I don't have to depend on my own love, which wavers. I can depend on God's love. That's the gospel. I don't depend on this to give me my identity, these things, my work, my friends, my spouse, my family. I don't depend on myself trying to muster it up because I'm going to have bad days where I won't even believe myself. I can say, I, I want to know that I'm better than I really am, but I'm not. Jesus, I need you. And that's when you can finally come out of that place because he's the only person that can reach into the mucky swamp of your life and pull you out. Oh, I love the good news of Jesus. But you have to stay in the gospel. 
Paul says, only if you stay in the faith. You don't move from faith to good works. You stay in faith and you keep pressing into faith and that faith produces good works. You don't simply look at your life and try to paint it up to look nice on the outside. You say, no, I, I have a, a root problem. My life is rotting and I need help. Spring is almost upon us. I feel like King Leonidas. Uh, I never had a lawn like I have here in Florida. And I never had weather like I have here in Florida. So you guys that have yards and lived here for a long time, you know how this works. So winter, I've enjoyed mowing once a month. And when I mow my lawn, it's like barely trimming anything off because my grass just froze. Whatever happened in like November, I wanted to just stay here because my grass froze, didn't want to grow. Because I remember last summer when I got my mower, I was so pumped because I felt like I felt like I was in Leave It to Beaver. I had my first like motorized mower. In California, it's a drought, so we had like a patch of grass and I had a little push mower. Now I've got this one, I pull the thing and it got turtle speed to rabbit speed. So I just rabbit speed all around. Well, summer, the weirdest thing happens in Florida. The grass never stops growing. It is angry at me, I think, for cutting it. So, he, so here's what happens in, in the summer. I'll be pushing my mower, mowing, and I'm cutting it, and it looks so clean and even, and I look behind me, and I feel like my grass is laughing at me. I feel like it's saying, we're right where you left us, and we're not stopping anytime soon. Because I have to mow every Monday, and it feels like I'm mowing, but in a pool. Like I'm underwater, but the water is my sweat. And I don't care for this. I don't care for this at all. <laughs> and here's what we need to, to know about our lives. As we're running to Jesus, as we're pressing into God, these two errors, the error that will draw us into being religious or the error that will draw us into trying to be our own God of our own life, these two errors, we're not going to see them coming. They're, they're like humidity for us, and they're growing up around us quickly. Our life is not about just saying, I believe in Jesus once, and now I'm going to try to work really hard. Because if we go to just believing in Jesus to work hard now, what happens is the humidity creeps in. We don't notice what's happening until we're drenched and the grass is eating us alive. We have to constantly say, okay, God, what am I trusting in that's not you to find my satisfaction in life? And every time you're presented with a difficult phase of life, don't say, I need to do better, and don't say, it's okay, God loves me. Say, I am a, I'm trusting in something that will not give me satisfaction. What do I trust in to change this? The answer is always going to be Jesus, but sometimes you have to figure out how to get there. When you try to share the good news with somebody, if you want to figure out where one of your idols are, go try to share the good news about Jesus with somebody that is in your life that you've never talked to about Jesus before. You'll find out right away what you're trusting in. Because if you get to them and you think, oh, I just don't know how to tell them about Jesus, Okay, right there you could say, okay, I'm wanting their approval and love and friendship more than I'm wanting Jesus's. I'm trusting that, that their love gives me my identity and not Jesus's love. Because when Jesus gives you your identity, man, you just want to shout it from the rooftops. There's, there's nothing greater than that. I, I loved watching Lord of the Rings because I was such a Lord of the Rings nerd, I told everybody about it. I was one of the few people that read the book. Books are those things that are covered with a cover and a back and they have words in them. I read the book before the movie. And I told everybody, this is going to be the greatest movie of all time. And I remember telling somebody uh, on a trip that I was on, I was just going on and on and on and on about Lord of the Rings. And I was geeking out over it. And I got so humbled when they said, hey, man, aren't you a pastor? I said, like, yeah. And they said, shouldn't you be this excited about Jesus? And I was like, oh, yeah. I probably should. This person was waiting for me to talk to them about God and I want to talk about Mordor. <laughs> they, they wanted to hear about God, but I was so nerding out on being this Lord of the Rings know-it-all that I wanted to tell them how the Urukai were made and, and where goblins came from. And the whole time, God's like knocking on my thick skull. This guy's eternity is waiting for you. Get off of the elf subject. But I couldn't do it. It revealed to me what I was trusting in. I was trusting in my identity as a Lord of the Rings geek rather than finding all my worth and value and purpose in Jesus. Only the gospel gives you the power to admit what's wrong with you. And this is where we need to, to end today. Too many of us will not admit what's wrong with us because our identity is still in how others perceive us. The good news of Jesus says you're finally free to admit what's wrong with you 
because God accepts you. Only in the gospel of Jesus can you finally understand what you're trusting in that's not Jesus. Only in the gospel can you finally find clean motivation to change, where instead of saying, I'm bad, I need to try harder, or God loves me no matter what, you can say, I'm worse than I think, but Jesus still runs to me, died for me, and will carry me along at his pace. Let's this week turn our eyes inward so that we can see how bad we truly are and how much God truly loves us and find our hope in that alone. And I think we're probably the only church for a solid 30 miles that will say the phrase, I am far more wretched than I ever think I thought I was, but that's actually good news. And if that's all you walk away with today is knowing that you are that bad, but God in his love and mercy came to get you, I'm good with that. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love and mercy. As we, uh, as we come to sing or hear one more song from you, I pray that you would tune our hearts to your voice. God, there are people in here who have been burnt and scarred by religion. And when they hear the word sin, all they have are those scars. I pray that you would wipe those scars away. I pray that everyone in here would not walk out feeling condemned, but knowing that there's hope. I pray for the marriages that are hanging by a thread in this room, that you would not, that you would not add strain, but you would show them that you want to enter into their difficulty and give them a better way to be married. I pray for the parents in here who don't know how to, to work in the, their family situation because their family seems like it's crumbling, that you would give them a clear vision of what they need to trust in to find resolution and reconciliation. God, I pray for the friendships in here that are broken and distant, that you would bring, be a uniting God. God, I pray for those in here who are worshiping their jobs and their they're worshiping their success and all their life is about how good they can appear to others. I pray that they would run to you and turn from, turn from trying to find their love and approval in things that never satisfy. God, I love you. Thanks for loving me.